Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas out there. How are you doing? Okay? You'll hear this during announcements, I'm sure, but uh, we can't get the word out enough. We'll be having Christmas Eve service here at the State Theater this Thursday at 2.30. We will not be having services next Sunday, the 27th of December. We're giving everybody, uh, including our hardworking volunteers, a little time off to be with friends and family. Now, most of you are familiar with Luke chapter 2, if you've been in church at all. But you are probably a lot more familiar with the earlier portions of that chapter. You know, where Mary's a virgin, but she gets miraculously pregnant. She and Joseph, her husband, are in Nazareth. But according to the Old Testament, Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem. So they've got a little journey to take, but there's no reason to take that journey. Until, that is, Caesar Augustus decides he needs more money. And he wants to make sure he's going to get all the money that's due him. So he's going to make sure that all the people are accounted for. So he orders a census. And for the census to be effective and be accurately done, everyone has to go back to their hometowns to register. Mary and Joseph happen to be from the family of David, whose hometown is Bethlehem. So off they go. And they get there just in time. The child is born. The shepherds are visited. And terrorized by the angels who have to tell them not to be afraid so they don't die right there on the spot. But they tell them that a Savior's been born, Christ the Lord. And if you've, if you've been in church at all at Christmas time, you are very, very familiar with that part of the story. But I'm pretty sure we're not as familiar with what follows that story. And isn't it true that certain things get highlighted and other things kind of get pushed to the back of the stage? For example, John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16. If you're a Christian or if you've ever watched an NFL football game because you got the guy holding the sign that says John 3.16. But who knows what John 3.15 is? Or John 3.17, the the left out verses. We all know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures and so on. Imagine what it's like for poor Psalm 22. Oh my gosh, he's opening his Bible. He's turning to the book of Psalms. He's getting close to my page. Maybe he's going to read me this time. But no, what is he here? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, he's devastated. See, the thing that's very familiar, very popular, very well known, kind of overshadows other things, which kind of just get lost in the shuffle. And not only that, sometimes we become so familiar with the popular thing that the significance of even that thing loses its significance. Familiarity can even dilute the significance of past events. So think about this. No matter where you've lived or what nation you've come from, certain things have happened in that country that changed the course of history and are well known by everybody. Maybe you even lived during some of those particular times. But as the years go by, they're often reduced to something completely different than the original significance of the event. Like like this example. How many of you are old enough to remember? I mean, really remember 9-11. How many, how many, yeah, that's quite a few people, most of you. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in the counterterrorism center at CIA. We had TVs in the offices, and when the first plane hit, I remember thinking, this is probably terrorism. Why? Because we thought everything was terrorism. That was our knee-jerk reaction to someone stubbing their toe. It was probably terrorism. And then we'd force ourselves analytically to work through everything to the conclusion that it was probably just someone stubbing their toe because we didn't want to miss something that was really terrorism. But when we saw the second plane hit, I remember thinking, life as we know it is forever changed. 
How many of you are old enough, you won't be as many hands probably, to remember the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, JFK? Okay, fewer hands, but still some of you. I remember being in this uh, elementary school in Charleston, Indiana. We were nearing the end of the school day. And when the news happened that he'd been shot, I remember kids crying all the way home on the bus. Here's another one. How many of you remember the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Ah, only two of you. Okay. See, yet there's significant events. Some of them are celebrated. Some of them are mourned. But if you take something like July 4th, 1776, the signing of our Declaration of Independence, here's what people normally say on the anniversary of that event. Hey, what you doing on the 4th? Having a cookout? Headed to the mall for the shows and the fireworks? Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, have you ever heard someone say this? Well, here's what I'm going to be doing on the 4th. I'm going, to, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to ponder the fact that there was an actual time and an actual date and an actual place and actual people that acted in such a way that we were set free as the United States, where we became a sovereign country. I'm just going to take some time and reflect upon that because it's, it's an amazing thing. See, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, who, who does that? See, the 4th of July has been reduced largely to barbecue in the backyard and fireworks. That's just what it is. Let's, let's be honest. And it can be the beginning of summer, Memorial Day. Hey, what you doing for Memorial Day weekend? Most of us, most of you, we end up lamenting the fact that apparently you and everyone else in the world is trying to get over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge at exactly the same time to get to the beach. Or, or hey, what, what you doing for Labor Day? What you doing for... Christmas. Let's just pray and see if we can't maybe refocus our attention on something that doesn't lose its significance or shouldn't. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thanks for these people that are here. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for this time of year. We remember what you did for us. We pray that you would give us a little bit more sense of wonder. Help us not to lose the significance of what happened on that day that many years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, um, Mary and Joseph, 40 days after Jesus is born, they're not in Bethlehem anymore. They've made their way to Jerusalem, um, as was the Jewish custom, to present Jesus at the temple. And there they meet a man that we don't know all that much about, a man by the name of Simeon. We don't know if he's a priest or what. What we do know uh, is that he was a devout man, a righteous man. Uh, sometimes the word righteous, if you're not too familiar with the Bible, is used of a person who, who lived a righteous life, you know, kept the law, uh, that kind of thing. Sometimes righteousness, particularly in the uh, New Testament, can mean the righteousness that's placed to our account when we put our faith in Christ. Uh, we also know something Mary and Joseph don't know. This man has been waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, to show up. Now, here's what I want us to do, because sometimes when you're, when you're reading the Bible, to get it, you almost have to put yourself in the place of the person you're reading about to get the full impact of what's going on. Like uh, this slide, uh, with this guy in a tent with a, a lion outside of it, it's pretty amusing. But see, it gets a little less amusing if you imagine that you are the guy in the tent. Maybe you're like me, you, you, at least for me, I've had dreams where I'm in a life-threatening situation, a peril all around me. As a kid, it was a Black Panther. Why? Because, well, you can't see a Black Panther in the night, so there's probably a Black Panther sitting there in that dark somewhere. Or a bear or a crocodile. Those are my, my three big ones. But after Jaws 
sharks got added to the mix, right? And our minds run through scenarios of how we're going to avoid getting eaten by these various uh, life-threatening situations. So if you could put yourself in the place of the guy in the tent, you can imagine what might be going through your mind as you're thinking about the various options you have to avoid being consumed by the lion. So let's, let's bring that whole concept to our story. Just like if you were trying to imagine that you, you were a signer of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, it had to be a very moving, maybe even very frightening uh, event. Because, see, signing this document makes you a target of the world's superpower. And you're probably wondering, am I going to die for signing this document? And what's going to happen to my family? Are they going to be massacred? And with all that was on the line, I suspect that you wouldn't be saying to John Hancock a year later, Hey, John, what you doing on the 4th? Grilling steaks? Headed to the beach? And something tells me we, we wouldn't be asking Simeon a year later. Hey, what, what you doing for Christmas this year? I, I think the significance of what happened was just so intense. And we're going to kind of feel that coming off the page at us. So let's just walk through the text and see uh, what it says. We'll start in Luke 2, verse 25. Here's what it says. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and, then, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Very interesting. The Holy Spirit had visited this man, had come upon him, and revealed certain things to him that the Holy Spirit had not necessarily revealed to other people. Waiting for the consolation of Israel means that, listen, this guy's been reading his Old Testament. He's been checking out which prophecies have already been fulfilled and which ones have yet to be fulfilled. And he's pretty much figured out that a lot of the ones not yet fulfilled have to do with this Messiah that's coming that's going to make it possible for people to have their sins forgiven and to be restored to a good relationship with God. And he would know from the timeline listed in the book of Daniel that this Messiah, this Christ, is due any moment. And he wants desperately to see him. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to him that he will not die until he sees this Messiah. So we got to put ourselves in, the, in his shoes as he's waiting for this. I mean, every day he's getting up thinking, this could be the day. This could be it. He's, he's giddy, like a kid waiting for Christmas. I'm not sure he was or, or that you would be waiting for something like a, a cardboard box to pop out or anything like this couple announcing they're having a Messiah. But, but here you are. You, you know the Old Testament. You know what it says about this promised one who's coming. You probably maybe even went back to the very first mention of Christmas in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, where God says that, that this Messiah called the seed of the woman is going to come. He's going to crush the head of God's enemy, Satan. And it's interesting that women don't carry the seed. Men do. See, even there, in shadow form, we see a hint of the virgin birth thing. So when Simeon is thinking of Genesis 3.15 and everything that flows out of that passage, he's going back in his time about 4,000 years. Maybe he even thinks about Moses' comment about the Messiah, that there's going to be a Messiah coming, a prophet coming, who's even greater than Moses is. And in that, he jumps from 4,000 B.C. to about 1,500 B.C. Maybe he jumps another 700 years up to the book of Isaiah. It says, point blank, there's going to be a virgin that's going to conceive and bear a son, and his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God himself with us. No, it's not Jane the virgin, it's Mary, okay? Then maybe he's thinking of, of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called, uh, some great names here, Wonderful Counselor, 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I mean, maybe that's on his mind. Maybe he's even jumping up to the days of Micah, uh, who says that this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem and will be called the Everlasting One. I mean, how much of all this could he have really pieced together? I mean, you're doing a puzzle. You're a little bit fuzzy about exactly what the puzzle looks like. And if Simeon had a cat, it would have been even harder. But, but he's there. And he knows he's going to see this Christ before he dies. He's not just focused on getting his Christmas tree. He's not just focused on his last-minute Christmas shopping because he's in the middle of the arrival of the Messiah. But see, familiarity with the story can dilute the significance of what just ha what is happening. Always has, always wills. We've we got to make sure that we guard against that. Thus we have this particular account, Luke 2.26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, Two words you see, one in the Old Testament, Messiah, uh, another word, Christ, in the New Testament, they're exact, basically the same thing. Messiah is Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, and it translates as anointed one. Christ is in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, and its translation is, ta-da, anointed one. It's the same thing. Just one happens to be Greek, one happens to be Hebrew. Okay, so Simeon comes into the temple, in the spirit, it says in verse 27, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. See, the Holy, Holy Spirit revealed that this baby, this Jesus, was, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, and he worshiped God. And if you look back on earlier passages in Luke, you'll find a lot of worship going on. The shepherds began to worship. The angels are worshiping. Everyone worships because the event had just occurred and had not lost the significance of, of, of it because of familiarity. It had not allowed time to erode the significance of it. See, when, when it actually says he held him in his arms, can, can you just go back and think, what is he holding in his arms? I suspect he did it better than this guy on the slide, but he's holding in the arms the seat of the woman, this king, this prince of peace, this everlasting one, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. Do you get it? Hey, what you doing for Christmas? Hey, what's going on on the 4th? Who you having over? What's happening? You see what happens with time and familiarity? It dilutes the intensity and the significance of past events. We just have to guard against it. So Simeon's praising God. Now, I bet if he lived another year, we don't know if he did. But if he did, and you asked him, hey, Simeon, what you doing for Christmas this year? You've already had your big deal first Christmas. What you doing for your second? I think he would probably say, I think I'm going to praise God, and I'm going to worship him just like I did the first Christmas. I'm going to praise him for the salvation that's come into the world. Here's what he actually says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. See, it's his very first Christmas. He's holding the Christ, the Savior of the world, in his arms. And he says, oh man, God, you are Lord, you are sovereign. You told me I wouldn't die until I'd seen him. And you are true to your word. I've seen him and I'm ready to go. It just doesn't get any better than this. Man, how many people think that way? I'm in the kingdom. I've been born again by God's grace in the gospel. I'm saved, to use 
biblical terminology. I'm on my way to heaven. How many of us think in terms of, I've got such a peace that I could depart this world and head to heaven right now and be okay? There's so much in that statement. I mean, he's got to be looking back on all his life and his struggles and even the good times. But he knows that what awaits him is so spectacular that it's almost as if he doesn't even care one whit about this life. Kind of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said. For me to live is Christ, but hey, to die is gain. Isn't it interesting that when biblical characters grasp the truth of the gospel, when they really recognize what it is that God's offering them, they're at peace. How often do we read, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? And we look around and go, man, is this even talking about the same world I'm living in? Things are lighting up all over the world. Disaster everywhere. There's not been real peace since Adam and Eve fell. What, what is he talking about? Well, Paul's not talking about external peace. He's talking about the peace that Simeon has. Woohoo! I'm in the kingdom, man. I am on my way to glory. Lord, you can take me right now. I'm so ready. I'm at peace. Nothing else I need to do here. Nothing else I need to accomplish. Nothing else I need to make right here. There's a lot to that statement. Then Simeon goes on. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Interesting statement. He doesn't say, I've heard about your salvation. I mean, certainly he had read about it. But no, he's saying, I've actually seen your salvation. See, salvation is not just a theological doctrine. I mean, there's doctrine and truth in it, but salvation happens to be a person. I've seen your salvation, and it was Jesus. And he goes on. I've seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, i got to tell you, if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, at that time, th this would have shocked you because the Jews were considered the chosen people whom God intended that that would be the nation that would bless every other nation in preparing people for the Messiah and then proclaiming the Messiah to them. But see, the Gentiles... Essentially, all those people who were not Jews, they were completely outside the Jewish nation. But now Simeon and others in this chapter have proclaimed the Old Testament truth that this child, this salvation, is not just for Jews. It's for everyone, Jews and non-Jews. Anyone can enter into this peace. Anyone can grab on to this salvation. Simeon says he's a light to the Gentiles. Maybe he's thinking about these Old Testament statements about how the Messiah coming would be a light to the nations. We see that in Isaiah. So what is meant by light? What's that metaphor supposed to mean? I mean, are we living in some kind of darkness? I mean, the sun comes up as it always has. It came up this morning. It came up yesterday morning. It's probably going to come up the next day. We got lights working here in the theater. What does the light to the Gentiles mean? Well, when God uses the term light here, he's not talking about a physical light that you can see, but a spiritual light. See, because the world lives in spiritual darkness. And it's very interesting that the world doesn't even know that it's living in spiritual darkness. It can't see that it's living in spiritual darkness. Not even aware of it. See, the world by uh, nature kind of trusts in five human senses, right? Look, taste, see, touch, smell. Right? That's how we get around. But God comes in and says, hey, you better watch out. There's another dimension that you don't see. And Christ is to be a light that shines and makes that world, that dimension, observable to us and known to us. So we don't hear Simeon saying in response to a question, what you doing for Christmas? You don't hear him saying, hey, I'm headed to the Jerusalem Mall. Got some shopping to do. Not that there's anything wrong with a little Christmas shopping. 
He's not saying, hey, I haven't got my tree yet. Got to get my tree. Now, look, it's okay to grab a tree. Hey, I'm having friends over. Nothing wrong with that either. Nothing wrong with any of those things. However, none of those things are the thing. And it happens all over the world. Significant events get reduced over time from what they originally meant. So, um, this was Simeon's first Christmas. And maybe some of you have yet to experience your first Christmas. You might say, man, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm, I'm 50. I've had, I've had numerous Christmases before. Well, kind of all depends. See, it's a little bit like going overseas. It's hard to celebrate another nation's key events, their holidays, as if you were a citizen of that country. And you can't do it like they do. But see, if you became a citizen of that nation, then some of those special events that that the nation celebrates would hold more significance for you because you're now part of that nation. But if you're not a citizen, if you're not in that particular kingdom, if you will, then really all that you've experienced is just a holiday, a, a day off work. On the screen, you see a picture from Bangladesh, which celebrates something every year called National Morning Day. And what they're doing is commemorating uh, mourning, really, the military coup that killed Bangladesh's first elected president, his wife, and three sons. His two daughters were spared because they happened to be out of the country at the time of the coup. Now, Brian and Lenita Kasiskas, who attended the surge for several months before being posted in Dhaka, Bangladesh, when that, ro- when that holiday rolls around, they will get that day off. But you know what? It won't mean as much to them as Americans. It will largely be a day off. And if you are not really in the kingdom of God, then all you have experienced at Christmas time is it a holiday. And you may have done that 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, 70 times. This is not a judgment call. I just simply want to show you that I think it, something will help uh, bring focus to this. Uh, I want to put up the words uh, for you of uh, one of the great Christmas hymns. I think this has some of the most incredible scriptural truths uh, that exist to put to music. People sing this song everywhere. And I'm convinced most who do have no understanding whatsoever of what they're singing. Why? Because familiarity dilutes the intensity and meaning even of lyrics that used to mean something at one time. So I just want to walk through this really quickly with you. It's a a song, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And Hark has an exclamation point after it. So there's something uh, that's being shouted forth of what the angels are saying. Hark! The Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn king. So there's born a king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. You can hit the pause right there. You can spend a lot of time studying the doctrine of reconciliation. How many people do you think have sung this song or heard it just over the last month? Sometimes when I hear it performed live, I just want to pop up on the stage, grab a microphone and ask them, hey, hey, what do you think it means that, that you just sang there, that God and sinners Reconciled. What's this peace on earth thing? I mean, I don't see any peace. Everything looks like a disaster. How do you get reconciled? Well, maybe they tell me, well, you know, reconciled. It's like if you have two friends and then they're friends. And then suddenly they're not friends anymore. Uh, because maybe one did something wrong. So they're, 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 they're kind of broken up as friends. To be reconciled, what would have to happen is the one who did the wrong thing, he'd have to come to a census and realize he did the wrong thing. And he'd have to change his mind about being wrong. And he'd have to 
go back to the person who's a friend and ask forgiveness. And if the person forgave him, then they could be friends again. They could be reconciled. Well, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Well, then how, have you been reconciled to God? Because what you just sang suggests that people may have done something wrong because God's God. He's, he's not done anything wrong. So if there's a reconciliation between men and 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 or people and God, then, then, then it must mean that we did something wrong as people. So maybe we sinned. Maybe we did something wrong. Maybe we need to change our minds about that thing. Maybe we need to go back to God and ask him for forgiveness because that's how reconciliation takes place. And from what you're singing, it looks like this reconciliation with God seems to have something to do with this newborn king. The song goes on. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Well, that's all taken right out of Micah chapter 2. The song goes on. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Now we got Christ not only as king, but as the everlasting Lord. That makes him better than a gobstopper, it turns out. He had no beginning. He will have no end. As a man, he, he did have a physical beginning, but he's the everlasting Lord. So now we're getting into him being described as the eternally existing one. And we're singing away. Do we even grasp the significance of that statement? Or has familiarity diluted the intensity of it? Song goes on. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Man, how do you explain that? The incarnate deity? He's God who's always existed, but now he's taken on human flesh. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's the second person in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's come to seek and say that which is lost. And yet as a human, he was actually born the seed of the woman. Man, how can this be? And what was going on at this incarnation camp? I guess I'll have to deal with that in another message. Song goes on. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. See, it pleased him because he came willingly to live among us. Again, all this hymn is just taken from various portions of Scripture. He was Emmanuel, God himself, with us. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. You know, if you've been coming to the surge at all, that we humans love to try to earn our own righteousness, but we fail miserably at it. And then there's God's gift to us of Jesus' righteousness. He's referred to as the son of righteousness because he has he has perfection within him. It's just inherent in him. Not only that, but when he came to this world, from the moment he arrived, he never sinned. It just See, it wasn't just his death that saved us. It was his perfect life. Had he not been perfect, he would have been simply dying for his own sins. And he could not have possibly been a substitute for us. And our problem is that we don't have that righteousness within us. It, it's got to be handed to us. And that happens, God says, when we put our faith in Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Song goes on. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. This, this passage refers to his resurrection. And in that offers healing, a solution to the death sentence we all live under. Laying his glory by, I mean, if you read First Timothy, where we're told that Christ didn't think that it was uh, so cool being God in heaven, uh, that, that he, would, he would actually lay that aside, put it aside, 
to come down to earth to make a way for us to be rescued and born that man no more may die. If you had a chance to talk to some people singing this song and ask them, what do you think it means, born that man no more may die? Are you going to die? Well, yeah, I guess everybody does. Well, you just got through singing that not everybody does. You just sang, band, born that man no more may die. What, what does that mean then? Well, here's what Jesus says in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, though he be dead, yet will he live. He that believes he that lives and believes in me shall never die. And this needs to be talked about. Because people are wailing away singing this song and have no clue what it's talking about. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. And you know what? Not one of us come into this world grasping the truth of the scripture just contained in that hymn. We're all probably guilty of wailing it away, singing it without a clue what it's talking about. And what's happened to that hymn is that over time, familiarity has diluted the intensity that that song was all about. That event that song was all about. Two things to close on here. One is maybe you've heard that song before, but you've never really, really understood. Never really heard that you need the very righteousness of God to save you. Never really understood that you need to be born physically and spiritually. Never really grasped the idea of the need for a reconciliation with God. I mean, you always thought, man, I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I go to church. Maybe I only go once or twice a year, but I go and I I try to do nice things. I'm sure at the end, God's going to let me in. And maybe now you find out you're not in. You're out. Because you've been trusting in something other than Jesus Christ and him alone. Simeon says this, he has seen the possibility of your salvation. You know, when when someone saves someone, they save them from something to something. From something to something. So if someone's drowning, you you jump in like this Chinese fellow who saw a family of uh, four struggling out in the lake. And he swims out, and one at a time, he grabs them. And he swims them to shore. Then he goes back and gets another one and drags that one to shore. He saves them from drowning by saving them to the shore. That's what salvation is. You're saved from something to something. Sadly, after doing that, the young man himself drowns. They recovered his body later that evening. And the family that he rescued, well, as the search was going on, they packed up. And left. And on the way out, someone asked them, "Hey, what? Where are you? Where are you going? Aren't you? Aren't you sit, waiting to see what what happens? Whether what happens with the, the the man that saved you? You know what they said? It's none of our damn business. <laughs> are you kidding me, folks? This is Christianity. Christ comes and dies for us, making rescue for us possible, and He dies in our place. And you know what happens?" Most people on earth will walk away from it, saying he's none of our damn business. But see, Christ and Christ alone has the righteousness you need. And he gives it to you as a free gift if you place your trust and faith in him as Savior and Lord. If you've not done that, I invite you to get it done. And on this Christmas, maybe, you'll be able to have your very first Christmas. See, because up to this point in time, It's only been a holiday for you. It's never had for you the significance 
of that original event. Number two, if you're a Christian, but maybe you'd have to admit that if someone asked you, what are you doing for Christmas, that you probably would not have said, well, I'm just going to sit back and praise God all season. <laughs> you probably wouldn't say, well, I'm going to just try to see everything in life through this lens of the peace that God has provided for me through Jesus. I'm no longer at war with the God of the universe. It's awesome. So you have an assignment then. Be a Simeon this week. Revive that sense of wonder that he had on his very first Christmas. Do not let the passage of time dilute for you the significance of the event. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you are doing. Thank you that you cared enough about us to come to earth and ultimately die for us. That was your purpose, to make it possible for us to have peace, reconciliation with you, that you've offered us salvation through your life and death. Thank you for it so much. As we get into the season, get together with family and friends, may we not lose sight of the significance of that event. In Jesus' name, amen.